evening. My name is Lawrence Pijo. I'm president and CEO of the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. And it's really an honor for me to welcome you to this historic church, 16th Street Baptist Church. And on last Sunday, this church commemorated a bombing that took place on 19, September 15th of 1963, where four girls lost their lives right in this church. And later this evening, you're going to hear from a young lady who is actually in this church and has a lot to tell you about what happened here. Now, just for housekeeping, uh, it's been a long day, and some may need to use the facilities in the church. They are located just below us, and you can access them through the stairwell that will take you downstairs, as opposed to coming up this way that might interrupt our speaker. A uh, little background information. You may be aware that on September 10th, Congress awarded a gold medal honoring those young ladies who I referenced earlier who were killed in the 16th Street Church bombing. That medal has its new home at the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. So you have an opportunity uh, to see the medal when you visit our facility. And I will tell you that receiving that medal at the program on September 10th was one of the highlights of my career. Because as a youngster growing up in New Orleans, Louisiana, when the city was segregated, there's no where in my wildest imagination could I have envisioned participating in a program where all of the congressional leaders spoke very positively about the impact that what happened here had, not only in the city of Birmingham, in this country, and still has around the world. So with that said, let me get to my responsibility, which is to introduce to you Carolyn Maul McKinstry. Carolyn is a native of Birmingham, Alabama. She was present, as I indicated, on September 15th in 1963 when this church was bombed by white racists. Carolyn's four friends were killed. As a teenager, Carolyn felt her calling by attending mass meetings right here in this church. She was among thousands of students hosed by firemen during the 1963 marches. She survived a second bomb explosion that destroyed a large portion of her home in 1964, an authentic child of the movement. Carolyn believes that God spared her life on that September day so that she could continue 
to live in service to others. She is now a citizen of the world and an ordained messenger of the gospel. She was educated in the public schools of Birmingham. She is a graduate of Fisk University in Nashville. She has done graduate studies at the University of Alabama and at Birmingham and received a Master of Divinity degree from Sanford University's Beeson Divinity School. She is currently an associate pastor at Trinity Baptist Church. Carolyn has held management positions in, with Brown and Williamson's Tobacco Company, Anderson Consulting, and is a retiree of Bell South Communications. She has recently authored a book, it's a memoir, entitled While the World Watched. The book details her life growing up in Birmingham, as well as lessons learned from her experiences and her involvement in the Birmingham Civil Rights Movement of the 60s. The book has been featured on C-SPAN 2 and serves as a tool for Carolyn's ongoing national and international travel and work in the Ministry of Reconciliation and Forgiveness. Please join me in welcoming Carolyn Moe McKinstry. Carolyn? Thank you very much to my dear friend, Dr. Lawrence Pijo, uh, President and CEO of the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. Uh, thank you so much for the honor to stand in front of you today and just to share a little of my story. Um, I hope that you've had a good visit as you have arrived in Birmingham. I've uh, heard from someone that you were in Montgomery uh, the first part of the morning and uh, have read a little bit about your history, so uh, I'm deeply honored to have been asked to come and to share my story with you. So thank you very much for this honor today. Well, I guess I could start with your theme, which is um, turning points, ordinary people, extraordinary change. And with that, I would say that I've always seen myself as very ordinary. And um, just to start with a little bit with um, my life, I just would like to tell you a little bit about how I grew up and my life in this church. And then September 15th, and then the things that have happened since that time. So as we begin, uh, I'd like to just pray and ask God to let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in his sight. Amen. And does anyone mind if I walk around, Dr. P, a little bit? Okay. Okay, thank you. 
I, as I said, feel very ordinary in terms of the person that I am. I was born about 50 miles from here in my grandfather's home, a little place called Clanton. And I'm one of six children, and uh, that was probably an ordinary or very common-sized family then. So nothing really unique going on except that my grandparents both had gone to college at a time when college was very limited to most people. Uh, my grandfather was a country preacher, and uh, they worshipped the ground we walked on as grandchildren and were always giving us um, advice. And my grandfather would tell me sometimes that he prayed for us every day, all day. And I would wonder why you had to pray so much, because I thought you only prayed when people were sick. But uh, he was always giving us words of wisdom. And by the time, I loved them dearly, but by the time I was two, my parents moved to Birmingham. And this was the church that they came to. This was the church that they joined when they came to Birmingham. So I um, began to grow up right here at 16th Street Baptist Church. There were a lot of programs here for young people. Um, we had a regular youth day, which meant we were in charge of uh, the readings, the, the choir, the ushering. I'm sure everybody's been part of youth day somewhere. And, uh, you know, we had the opportunity to represent the church in a lot of ways. I know I uh, traveled to Oral Roberts University when I was only 15 years old and to the National Baptist Convention in Michigan. I think I was only 14 when I did that. But they provided as many opportunities as they could for us. We had sleep-ins here, uh, the usual Easter egg hunts. And uh, as we grew older, we were given positions of more responsibility. Uh, because I had done quite a bit of work with my grandfather, I was accustomed to working in the church. I was a great programmatic person. And when I, uh, in the summers, I would go back and visit the grandparents, and we would travel all over the South, Verbena and Jemison and all these little places, Notasolga, and we would do two weeks of vacation Bible school in each place. And my grandmother would say, well, okay, now you outline the program. This is how we start, and these are the crafts that we'll work on, and these are the Bible verses that we're going to study. And at the end, we would always have a program. And that was the most exciting part, because we got to be on the program. So I had a heart for ministry. I had a heart for working in the church. And I think someone here knows noticed that. So in the seventh grade, I became our Sunday school secretary here. And that just meant that I counted the uh, money and the attendance on Sunday. And at the end of Sunday school, I would read the report to everyone. Um, but I thought it was an exciting place to be because uh, people were always here. I didn't know why at the time. I didn't understand why at the time. But it just seemed that people were always here. Well, I just happened to be here uh, on the evening that they had the first uh, mass meeting. Uh, back in the day, the church office was right here. If you go through the exit door there and turn left, there's a room that says Pastor Study, but it was actually the office back in 1963. And 
And I would come down sometimes and just open mail, uh, answer the phone, whatever they asked me to do. And I just happened to be here on that day. I was working in the back. And I heard uh, what I called fiery speeches out here. I heard songs. And uh, I could tell that there was a crowd, but I didn't know what was going on. So I came and I stood at the door. And when I looked out, the church was completely full, much as it is this evening. And uh, the best part about it was there were young people. They were all young people my age, some a little younger, some a little older. But um, that's an exciting thing when you see that many young people gathered together and the balconies were full and everything. So I wasn't sure at that point, at that moment, what was going on. I just knew that I wanted to be part of it. So I put my things away and I came out and I sat right over in this section here. And when I looked up across the pulpit behind me, there were six ministers there. That was uh, Reverend Jesse Jackson, Reverend James Bevel, Reverend Andrew Young, Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth, Reverend Ralph Abernathy, and of course, Dr. Martin Luther King. And as we listened, we heard first about uh, nonviolence. We were told that uh, we had some, some things that we were change in Birmingham. And what were those things? We were trying to change the segregation laws. One of the key questions that became the mantra for the movement was, can a man love God and hate his brother? And it was a very compelling question, uh, uh, still a very relevant question today, but we were looking to change the segregation laws, not to change them, but to actually avoid them, to get rid of them. So Dr. King spoke to us about nonviolence and told us how important it was that we um, uh, maintain the integrity of the nonviolent movement. And if we could not do that, if we could not maintain the integrity of the movement, then perhaps it was not for you. Perhaps you should find another way to make your contribution. So after we listened to him, we had someone that came out and talked about what you could expect from the policeman, uh, that you might have um, dog, policemen might have dogs, they might have billy clubs and so forth, and that the only appropriate response was no response, that we could not respond or fight back if something happened. So the very, very um, uh, much emphasis on the nonviolence part of the movement. Then we sang songs, songs that you know, ain't gonna let nobody turn me around, woke up this morning with my mind on freedom and so forth. And um, when we left, uh, we were told, you will know when it's time. You will know when it's time to march. So the next morning, I got up and went to school and um, at Parker High School, graduate local high school here in Birmingham, and I uh, had the very first lunch hour that started at 11 o'clock, and we were outside. We had just gotten outside, and somebody showed up with a big poster board, and the poster board simply said, it's time. And if we had been to this meeting or if you had listened to the radio, to the disc jockeys, you knew what it's time meant. So many of us, uh, well, I just squeezed through a fence, but many people climbed fences, came out of windows. They did whatever they needed to do to become part of the march and then marched down the path, the 8th Avenue path to this church. And we, I remember being stopped uh, twice, I believe, but the ultimate goal we ended up right here in Kelly Ingram Park. One of the surprises of the day was that we had not been told about water hoses or about um, 
army tanks. And I don't know if you have been, have toured this whole church, but downstairs there are pictures of all of that. If you have not seen it, you may want to just take a quick look on your way out. Well, after uh, that experience, um, I decided that I was going to uh, continue with the administrative end of it. Water, water hose is a very painful experience, and I've always been afraid of dogs, always. So I decided uh, that and the fact that when I got home, my father was really, really upset that I had been involved in the movement at all. So uh, my thing sort of took a turn um, in terms of my participation. I had very strict parents. Um, my father uh, had served in the military. He had a master's degree in physics and was probably a lot more afraid for us than he ever allowed us to know. But I saw some of that, I think, when I had marched and come home and he forbade me to ever be involved. You know, he didn't tell me I couldn't come back to the church, but he forbade me to, to be involved. And um, my father had a second job that I think allowed him to know a lot more than he ever shared with us. On the weekends, he waited tables at one of the local country clubs here. And I knew when he had heard something that frightened him in that country club because he would come home and all the rules would change or we would get a new rule and we would try to figure it out. And I was always the one in the house that asked why. I had four brothers and one little sister, but um, I would always ask why. And my father felt no felt no, um, uh, he just felt no, no option to tell you why at all. He just didn't owe you any explanations. And he said, because there are two adults in the house. And so <laughs> I, um, I would tell people he, I had the meanest dad in Alabama. <laughs> I actually thought I did because of his rules, but uh, we would learn in later years that we didn't live very far from Bob Cherry and Thomas Blanton, um, their homes where they were. We could have walked there if we had known who they were or actually known where they lived. But as children, we didn't know who they were. We sort of learned about them later on during the trial stage. But because of, of my parents, I, I try to set the stage by talking about them because it sort of explains why I spent so much time here. I spent a lot of time in the church. I couldn't date, and I didn't drive, and I couldn't go anywhere, So, but I could always get permission to come here. So I spent a lot of time here, and that's why I said I just happened to be here when the first march started. Well, going back to Parker High School, as we marched from Parker High School and we came to this vicinity, um, the records tell us, and I think you know the rest of this story, that... Um, uh, people ranging in ages from about 8 years old to 80 years old marched and the records tell us that over 5,000 of them went to jail and uh, not long after that our president turned on his television and saw all of this and not long after that we received a Supreme Court order for desegregation and then not long after that came the bombing of this church. Now um, what many people don't know is that at the time of the bombing of this church, there were over 80 unsolved bombings in Birmingham. Sometimes I say bombing was a way of life. I say that because we could be sitting on the porch on, on any evening and we would hear the sound somewhere out in the yonder 
and it would boom, you could just kind of hear it that way, but it always felt like the earth moved. And we knew that the next thing we would hear would be the phone ringing. And someone would call and they would say, they just bombed the home of A.D. King. Or they just bombed the home of Arthur Shores. And we would just sit quietly. No one would talk. We would just sit and hope that no one had been hurt and that no one had been killed. And prior to the bombing of this church, no one had been hurt. Just property destroyed. Uh, black homes, black businesses, black churches. So on the morning of September 15th, I arrived at this church with two younger brothers in tow, Alan, who I think was six. I was looking at um, a report, an earlier report, uh, where I think I told him he was eight, but I think he was really six, and Wendell, who was 10. Uh, we had a brother that had dropped us off at church that Sunday morning. We came in through the downstairs door. And uh, when we came in, I placed them in their classes. I sat in my class. My class downstairs would be the gift shop today. So if you see a sign that says gift shop, that's the classroom. But um, our lesson for that morning was a love that forgives. And I'll pause just for a minute here to say that one of the things we did this year, we contacted the National uh, Baptist Sunday School Publishing Board. We went all the way back through their archives to September 15, 1963, to make sure that we were correct in that the, that was the lesson, a love that forgives. We uh, took the text that they had used in the book, which came from Genesis, and we sent uh, communication all over the country in the last month, asking every pulpit uh, during Sunday school and 11 o'clock worship to talk about a love that could forgives. I think we put sample materials on the website, but we said also, you know, use your own uh, whatever uh, prerogatives God has given you. Use your spirit and just, just talk about how important it is for us to love and to try to promote healing and to forgive. So that was the lesson for that day. But when I, when I got up at about 10.15 and... Um, um, began collecting the reports. Everybody had a little booklet with the names in it, and then they had a little envelope with the money in it. So I collected these downstairs and started upstairs. Now, uh, when you go downstairs, you'll see also that, you know, the step that there's two sets of steps that lead up here. You won't be able to touch the space where the girls were. But if you could, once upon a time, uh, there are two steps just like this downstairs and an exit, and once upon a time, you could turn right there. You could turn right, and if you turned right, you'd walk into a, what I called just a huge lounge. It looked more like a den. It had sofa and chairs in it and freestanding mirrors. And so as I approached coming up here, I um, uh, paused at the door because I saw Cynthia was primarily who I was looking for, but I saw uh, the other girls, Eddie and Denise and uh, Carol there. Well, Cynthia and I um, were in a club together, and one of the newspapers had given us the privilege of putting, we had a club meeting on September 15th scheduled, and one of the newspapers had given us the privilege of putting that announcement in the paper. So we were excited about two things. One was the youth day, but the second thing was that club meeting that we had at 3 o'clock. And the paper said, 
Cavalettes Club to meet at 3 p.m. on Sunday, September 15th. Don't forget to bring your $3. We were ordering T-shirts and hats. And so I paused at the door. I said hello to them. But I didn't stay there because primarily because I had all my materials in my arm where I was uh, going to create the Sunday School Report. Many of you know by now that there was a fifth girl in the bathroom. I did not see Sarah at all. I just saw those four. And then uh, after I spoke, I started up the stairs. Um, beyond that point, what happened next, uh, at least as far as the bathroom, Sarah has the last word on that. She was the last person to see these four girls and to hear everything that happened. Uh, but she says that at the time of the explosion, when she... Um, Heard Addie say, I had heard Denise say, Addie, please tie the sash on my dress. That was when the explosion took place. Well, if you've had a chance to look at the sculpture across the street in the park, we try to mimic that scene. We try to sort of reenact that scene. You see um, Addie kneeling down and she's trying to tie the bow on Denise's dress and you see Carol sort of saying come on you know we need to get to Sunday school we need to get to church well when I passed them I came upstairs to this office right here and I was putting I really wasn't going to the office right then I was going to come out and collect the adult reports but when I got to the office the phone was ringing or when I passed that way the phone was ringing so I went in and answered it and the caller on the other end said three minutes and just as quickly as he said that he hung up and I'm still holding my materials but I walked out here and I reached as far as this beginning of this aisle right here when the bomb exploded in the church um, I don't remember knowing that it was a bomb, even though we knew bombs were exploding in Birmingham. I was very familiar with that. I had seen things on television. But I just saw the windows come crashing in. And even before, um, even as they crashed in, my mind sort of went to weather. I didn't know if it was lightning or, or what. But then there was just this sound. And I heard someone scream and say, hit the floor. And I just fell on the floor right here. And I think at that point was when I knew that something other than just bad weather was happening. So we all went out through the back, and my first thought was for the two younger brothers that I had. And um, my, brother, my father had a rule about when we left home. He said if three people left, three people had to return. So there was no such thing as I don't know where he is, I don't know where she is, so I was just in search for those brothers, and that kind of becomes another story, but um, eventually my father came and picked me up, and it would be later that evening, this is still Sunday evening, but it would be later, like three, perhaps three o'clock-ish, somewhere in there, before I actually knew that the girls had not made it out of the bathroom. I remember someone calling my mother before we knew, and then I remember someone calling my mother and saying they, they had not made it out of the bathroom. Uh, she told me that, and that was all she said. And so I kind of went in the room. We didn't talk about it. Um, the next morning, um, I got up and got ready for school. And I went to school, and there was nothing mentioned about this at school. There was no special uh, convocation or program. There was no announcement. There was no special morning prayer. We just went on with the day, um, as we did every day. And then the days went on, the days wore on, and um, 
Uh, approximately eight months later, we moved back into the church. We were out while they renovated and repaired. But I also remember when we came back, there was no, um, no thought of the things that had happened. The bathroom had been sealed off, as you'll see when you go down. And uh, there was no real memory of what had happened on September 15th. So we just began to try to pick up the pieces um, and, and go on with our lives. Well, not long after that, I think I was doing pretty good, but not long after that, somewhere in the, in the April time frame of the, few, the um, well, let me back up and say that evening of the September 15th, you know that there were also two young men in Birmingham who were killed uh, after the bombing of the church. Um, somewhere in April of 1964, the house across the street from us was bombed as well. And when we talk about turning points, when we talk about um, things that change our lives, most people would have expected me to say that it was the day that this church was bombed. But I think the real turning point, the real fear set in uh, when they bombed the house across the street. There's a very different feeling, there's a very different sound, and there's a very different um, um, noise. Everything is different. When you're in a building like this that's well constructed and it's solid, well built, um, we've been told many times that more people did not die because of how well built this building was. So we sort of didn't get the full, we didn't hear the full impact of what was going on. But when you're living just in our regular homes like we live in, little small houses, frame houses and things, we heard it all. And I was really frightened when this church was bombed, but I was more frightened when they bombed the house across the street because we heard it. And then we, it was really loud, all the windows came crashing in, the porch fell down. And then we heard these horrible screams. The uh, woman who lived in the house awakened, but her family did not. And she was screaming to try to wake them up so they would come outside and just screaming these horrible screams. And so here we were, these same three children, although there are six in our house, but these same three are listening once again, not only to the sound of, of dynamite go off, but to uh, the terror and the scream in the voice of this person. Well, I think it's safe to say from that point on, I uh, was probably really afraid. Uh, I remember if trucks passed by, you know how they pass by and make that noise? If someone popped a balloon, I just remember uh, just believing and getting to a point where I believed that that was my lot in life. That was all of our lot in life. If you were a person of color, we would want to, want to sooner or later, this is how we would die from a bomb. Not really having anyone to talk to about it, and you know, we just began to kind of in our own mind formulate what this was about, but it was really troubling for me because I understood that the problem was what color we were, but I didn't understand what we were expected to do about it. Now, today that's probably not a struggle for young kids, you know, when they experience things, and I'm not sure how much of a struggle it was for anyone else, but 
I really worried um, because I, in my in my mind, 14, 15 years old, I'm thinking to myself, I'm a good person. You know, I go to school and I do my homework. I have good grades. I obey my dad and my mom. And I just didn't understand what we were supposed to do. And I worried and just in my own way, let me put it that way, I worried. Um, I, I suffered from what we might call today, we would call it depression. But for almost 20 years, just thinking, being afraid, I had trouble sleeping at night. And I just kept saying, there's got to be a way. There must be something I missed. And I'm going to fast forward the story a little bit. Um, but let me, let me back up and say, um, during those years, the introduction that, these are the introductions that I had to what segregation meant. If no one sits down and explains to children what it's all about, then you sort of create your own definitions. And so here, my definitions came from one, uh, my grandfather bringing my grandmother to Birmingham and then she's taken to a hospital. And none of the hospitals in Birmingham took people of color. So my grandmother's placed in the basement and my mom said, we need you to stay with her because we have to work. And uh, I didn't mind staying with my grandmother. I loved my grandmother. But it took two weeks for her to die. She was 54 years old. She was a first grade teacher and 54 years old. So that scene stayed in my mind for many, many years. And when I say many years, I mean like 20, 30 years. And I can fast forward that piece and tell you that in later years, I would go back to that same hospital and serve. It's, today it's called Preston. It was West End Baptist then. But I went back to that hospital and served as a chaplain for a year. Uh, I... I can't explain it to you, but it's like I had unfinished business there. I needed to go back to that space where my grandmother had been and just to serve people in a way that she hadn't been served. And it was the only thing that eventually sort of pushed me on past, and I forgave all of the people, because they probably are no longer living, but just whoever they were that uh, felt that uh, she didn't deserve the care or to be upstairs in a room. The second thing that sort of had me trying to define what this was and what it meant was just winning uh, a statewide spelling competition. I had made my way through all of the city's schools and then the county schools, but uh, after winning the state, becoming a state speller, uh, we learned that children of color could not go to the national spelling competition either. So not long after that, when I entered high school, then George Wallace made his famous stand in the doorway, and he said, not today, not tomorrow, not ever. It's just not going to happen here in Alabama. So these were my three kind of um, experiences, if you will, uh, that sort of defined for me what that meant. And I think it also explains perhaps why I walked around thinking that sooner or later, you know, this was going to be my lot in life. Uh, Martin Luther King was shot and killed when I was at Fisk University. Another really horrible time as students gathered together and they were frightened. And those of us that had already come from environments like this uh, didn't know what, quite what to do. But the, the campus um, administration and the guys on the campus tried to be as comforting as they could. Well... I said I would fast forward this story, but uh, when, when I think in terms of turning points, the first thing I would say to you is that the first one came with the second bombing. I was more frightened for some reason with that second one than I ever was with the first one. 
uh, just frightened beyond words, anything I could ever dis- describe to you. And it was not something I ever had a chance to talk to anybody about, to say, no one ever said, are you okay? Do you miss your friends? Do you want to talk about what happened? We, we do that today, but we didn't do that then. So that would have been my first turning point of trying to figure this thing out. I really went deeply into trying to understand the, the um, problems that we have in our country today. Um, I think the second turning point would have come, I had the privilege of meeting Jimmy Carter, and I had the privilege of meeting Dr. Marion Wright Edelman. She was actually the first person that invited me to come to Haley Farm, for any of you that know about that place. And um, they called several times, and I said, no, I've, you know, Ms. Edelman wants you to come to the farm and talk to the kids. I said, no, I don't talk to people. I'm just somebody that survived a bombing. That's really what I said to her. I'm just somebody that managed to survive a bombing. She said, and the second time I said the same thing, I said no. And then she called back, and she, the, someone called back, and they said, um, she, we know who you are. Ms. Edelman would like for you to come. And so I went, uh, not really, still not wanting to go, but when I arrived there, uh, Reverend Shuttlesworth was there, and I listened as they were all talking about uh, the things that were going on and how important it was for children to know their history and to know the things that had gone on. And she asked me if I would tell the story of here, and I did. And from that point on, she began to invite me to a lot of things. So I just kind of began to, to travel and go places and talk to people about what was going on. Now, um, that represents, I think, my kind of my second turning point because I realized that I couldn't just sit at home and be sad or depressed. I had to do something. And by this time, I had uh, met my husband and married. I had family of my own, and I wanted things to be better for them. Uh, I wanted them not to have to live through the things that I did. So um, I worked in telecommunications for over 27 years, but during that time, I continued to travel and to go to a lot of places. God has blessed me to to go many, many places uh, outside of our country. Um, I did a little slide for the Rotary in Kiwanis not long ago, and I mentioned uh, India and Rome and Ireland and Scotland and Spain and just all the places that I had been invited to talk about Birmingham, but more than talk about Birmingham, to talk about the matter of love, of healing, of forgiveness, and reconciliation. It started out one word, reconciliation, and those other words got added in. Well, somewhere in all of that came another turning point. That was the third one. That was when I went to um, Sanford University. I really still was struggling with this, and I kept thinking to myself, I just missed something somewhere. I'm going to go and just learn. I'm going to really find out what's, you know, it just must be something that we've missed. And, um, you know, I discovered that there really wasn't anything that I had missed. I, um, I worked and I studied and I read and I continued to travel and meet people. But what I learned was that uh, we are all independent beings and we have a choice to make every single day about what we do. Uh, what I learned was as I traveled, uh, when, I, when I went to Rome, I stayed uh, three or four days in a nursing home with some seniors. I just kind of wanted to write a little report about uh, their environment versus over here. And I heard the same things in those nursing homes over there that I hear over here. They said, our children have given us away. They just threw 
us into these nursing homes. The government is taking our money, you know. It was all the same things. And uh, then there was one nice gentleman that wrote a poem for me, and he asked me if I was married. And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm married, and my husband's going to be really unhappy if I don't come back home. <laughs> and... Um, when we, uh, as we worked, at this time I'm still working with Mrs. Edelman a bit, but we, we received an invitation to, um, to go to India, and that invitation was to, to look at some of the projects that Ford had done in India and how they were teaching women, primarily women, to be independent. This project came up because of Alabama, Georgia, and Mississippi being the poorest states, and they wanted to do some work here, so they said, go look and learn and see what we did there, bring that back, and let's do it, let's translate it to those states. So as we, as I did, worked with her and was still trying to go to school and everything, I just came to a point where I began to pray about it and I really felt that God had called me. Uh, I knew that he had called me, but at this point I felt he had called me to be an ambassador for reconciliation. And so with that said, I began to do uh, a lot more things. Um, I believe that we are all created in his image. I believe that how we treat each other uh, is how we show our love for him and for each other. And so I um, began to just travel um, wherever I was invited, all across this country and outside, to talk about uh, the things that I saw, the things that I had witnessed, and to teach about what happens when we teach hate. When I wrote this book, um, I started it in 1948, which was the year I was born. It ends in 2013. The, the timeline that I put here ends in 2013, which is this year. And I tried to recount all of the things, the horrible tragedies and things that had happened during my lifetime. In fact, I had marked a page where I wanted to just give you, uh, read an excerpt for you, but I'll, I'll wait a few minutes before I do that because I do want to leave time for questions and answers. Um, so I, I have one message that God has given me, and it is the one that I, I travel with the most. I talk about uh, the bombing of the church. I'm grateful that my life was saved 50 years ago. And even more recently during an illness, God brought me back so that I could continue to, to do this work. I believe that we promote reconciliation one person at a time. Uh, I think that was another turning point in my life when I realized that it was an individual choice. It was an individual decision. Um, but can I convince each of you, one person at a time, that uh, we get what we give. I've learned that we're more alike than we are different. Every place that I've been, uh, all the people that I've spoken to, this is the, the conclusion that I would always come to, that we're more alike than we are different. I was troubled when I began to see things around our country in the last several years that to me were strangely Reminiscent, they were frighteningly reminiscent of some of the things that I had heard, some of the things that I had seen in the 1960s. So I said, This is a good time to remind us of what happens when we teach hate, hatred. Um, and I knew uh, when my husband came home um, 
he, when this was after a particular experience, but he came home and he was sad. And he said, I was at this church and they were having a little birthday party for a little girl. And I just walked in and said, well, I hope you have a, a really good birthday party. I wish you a happy birthday. I sure would like to come to your party. And she said to him, she looked at him a while and she looked at him and she says, I don't want any brown people at my party. And I knew, you know, he's an adult, but I knew that he was troubled also by what he heard. So I, I began to sort of seek out the schools and the teachers and uh, some of the churches. And just, uh, I believe that all of this teaching begins in the faith community. And, uh, but, but it can happen with everyone. What we must do, number one, is teach all children to respect all people. Uh, it doesn't matter what culture they are. I was in Birmingham early, I mean, in Montgomery earlier this morning, and there was someone there from, uh, I want to say that she said Austria or something, but she wanted to, she said it was just uh, the most warm and comforting message that she had heard as we talked about healing and forgiving and so forth. Um, Teach all children to respect all people. I can tell when I'm in the presence of children who have not been taught, and I'm sure you can too. The second thing I would say is that we need to teach all history, all cultures. Um, one of the things that was so important to me, I remember I saw at the Frist Museum in Tennessee, I was there and they had 100 years of black photography, and um, I was so excited because I thought, this it looked like me. It was very positive images of me, and it's very important for, for all of us. It doesn't matter if you're young or old. It's very important for all of us to see positive images of ourselves. Um, the other thing is that we need to facilitate um, social interaction between cultures of young people. Can we assist with social messaging as we put up various... Um, exhibitions as we have various discussions and panels in the group. Can we, can we assist with social messaging by, by the types of exhibitions that we put up? Can we influence children how, how rich we all become when we know the culture and the diversity of other people? Right. Um, I could tell also when I was at Sanford and the other places that I've been, I could tell that our children don't know the history. And I'm talking about all children, whatever color they happen to be. They would tell me, they would say, Miss Carolyn, we saw eyes on the prize or we saw this or the other, and we don't understand. Why are people marching? Why are they angry? We don't understand. And then I would have students that would, would ask other types of questions, and some of them were were painful questions, they were difficult questions, but I always answered them as respectfully as I could. So I am just here to say that you're in a unique position. Um, I can remember uh, that um, thinking that that could have been a wonderful turning point for someone. The Frisk Museum, when I saw that I can certainly say when I visited the Holocaust Museum in Washington, I went back to that museum four times after I saw uh, the first, walked through it the first time. And I thought, how can anyone walk through here once and not be changed and not feel that I have a supreme obligation to make sure that every person uh, has life and enjoys life the best that they can. How can we not walk through the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute and look at the struggle, the tremendous price, the blood price, the blood
blood price that has already been paid for all of the freedoms that we all enjoy today. Um, so I just ask you, uh, I'm not a, uh, I've been to a lot of museums. I actually went and pulled out some, um, a lot of uh, my old uh, visiting film, and I called Dr. P yesterday, and I was telling him what I had. He said, I think they want to hear your story. So I, I left all of that stuff behind, but the uh, Trinity Museum in Dublin, uh, if anybody has been there, I uh, had the privilege of, of going there and uh, spending some time. And uh, I just think that we have a wonderful opportunity. I, uh, museums are wonderful. I think we have these opportunities wherever we are. If we're in the classroom, uh, if we're uh, in libraries, um, wherever we are. If we are going to make this country the best it can be. In the year 2014, we, we hear that there will be no majority minority. Right, And so right now we're probably the most diverse we've ever been in our country and it may be a little uncomfortable for some people, but I think we can get there. I think we can overcome. And so um, my prayer is today that all of us will take up the mantra of, of love, agape love, which says I love you unconditionally. Uh, it's not about what you're wearing. It's not about how many degrees you have. Uh, it's not about where you live. It's just about that we're all created in his image. Uh, and uh, take up the mantra of healing, uh, forgiveness. Uh, one of my favorite books uh, on forgiveness, Desmond Tutu, No Future. No future without it. No future without forgiveness. So, um, And I'll back up and, and just tell a quick little story that I tell sometimes about uh, healing. Uh, we have an opportunity to, to every day, we all encounter people uh, who need something every day, and some days are worse than others, but on this particular day, I really wasn't here, I was in Huntsville, and I um, had gone up, my husband was working there, I went up and had dinner, I was about to get in my car and come back home, and we were just standing on the corner talking, and a lady drove up in a car, and she said, um, ma'am, do you have $5? I'm trying to get some gas. And immediately my mind went to, boy, she's not going to get much gas for $5, because I think it was about $4 at the time. It was pretty high. And, uh, and she probably thought I was thinking, and I was going to say no, and she said, I don't drink, and I don't smoke. And these are my children. And she pointed to a little girl and a little boy in the back seat who appeared to be maybe five or seven, somewhere there. And, uh, and I still didn't respond, so she added more. And she said, I'm trying to get out of town. I just had my husband arrested for beating me up. I'm trying to get out of town before his family bails him out. So at that moment, I said to myself, um, there was no question that what I would do, but my, you know, I had one bill in my purse. I knew exactly what I had, one bill. It was a $50 bill, and it was my money to drive back to Birmingham with. And I was not as concerned about giving the money to her as I was my husband seeing me giving the money to her. <laughs> I knew what he would say. Uh, I was a little afraid that he might even take it and not let me give it to her. So I just sort of fumbled around in my purse, acting like I was looking for it. And when I found it, I kind of balled it up like that. And I took it and kind of pressed it into her hand. And I said, my prayer for you is that um, God will guide you safely where you're going and that when you arrive, there will be people there for you and your children. And um, she thanked me and she drove off. Well, in a, we stood there and talked a few more minutes. And in a few minutes, she came back. 
I mean, I guess she drove out to the street. She probably looked at that bill. And then she turned around and she came back. And when she came back, she said, ma'am, will you pray for us? Well, I had uttered a, a small prayer for her, but I just reached back and took his hand, and then I took her hand, and we prayed again for them to reach their destination safely. Now, I don't know who this person was. I probably never see them again, but I tell you that story primarily because um, my husband did kind of jump up and down. The first time he heard this story, that was the time he found out about the $50. <laughs> so uh, we were actually in a different setting, but he didn't know until I, he heard me tell it. But uh, this this person was someone who did not look like me. She looked like you, right? But she needed help. I have children. I know what it means to be short uh, on money. I know what it means to have children, to be trying to escape a difficult situation. And she was just someone that needed help. What we want to do is um, let people know that we care you know, whatever, in whatever way we can help them. Now, you know, everyone is not asking for money, but in whatever way that we can help, it doesn't matter where you came from, what color you are, where you live. If I can help, I will help. I want to show you that uh, we can make the world a better place. We can uh, reach out to people who are different from us, even in our faith communities. We can be true to our faith. Whatever that is, we can be true to our faith and still be good administrators of love, of healing, of reconciliation, and of forgiveness. So I'm going to stop right there and um, because I promised Dr. P I would pause for questions, and I may have already stopped too late. But um, I am, um, again, just delighted to have the opportunity to speak to you. And if, you have, uh, if I can uh, answer a question or, or kind of expound a little bit more on what I was saying, I'll be happy to do that. Yes, ma'am. The difference in reconciliation and, and healing. Uh, when I think in terms of healing, I'm thinking of personal healing to see about their service, but I also wanted to practice presence just my presence among them so they could get comfortable. Uh, invite them to where you are, practice presence, so that they come and, and see different worship. This Saturday, this past Saturday, I did the morning prayer at uh, Temple Emmanuel here in Birmingham. And uh, so they understood what I was doing. And I said to them, you know, all this year, we started in January, we've been reflecting on everything that happened in 1963. But it's not enough to reflect. We need to do something. We don't need to just look back and reflect. Uh, at one point, King, Dr. King asked the question, where do we go from here? So we've reflected all year. And we know what his principles were. We know um, what he stood for. And I think it just behooves all of us um, to find some small way that you can come out of your comfort zone, whether that be church, whether that be somebody like that woman I encountered. I encounter people all the time. And, you know, it's not that you have um, an answer or, or something to give them each time, but, but it's a way to um, practice the love of our neighbor as ourselves, uh, whatever we can do. Sometimes we send people to other people. You know, I can't help you, but she can. You know, so we send them to other people. But you have to think about what that means and, and then and go. But I do think that uh, Reverend Shuttlesworth used to say that the churches should be the front line, the very front line of everything that was going on, whether that was uh, um, 
civil rights or whether that was ministry or reaching out to people, whatever it was, they should be on the very front line. They should be out front. They should be first leading the charge. So uh, if you're a member of the faith community, think about yourself, how you can um, uh, encourage your church and your surrounding community to do more, to interact with each other. It's going to mean uh, so much to our children in the long run. I know you've got some good questions out there. Yes, sir. Have you reconciled with the families of the bombers? I forgave those bombers a long time ago. And uh, that was put to the test when I was subpoenaed to the trial. Uh, there came first fear because I was subpoenaed by the, um, the attorney for Bob Cherry, not the other side but the defendant side. And uh, that was a really hard thing to do. I can't uh, tell you. It would take a little while to tell you how difficult. I struggled with that for two or three weeks. But um, I was told that it, if you get a subpoena, you're arrested if you don't show up. So I said, okay. All right. All right. So I went. But yes, I have forgiven them. I have not seen them. But let me tell you, I, there's a letter I carry around with me. Um, this letter is from the cellmate of Bobby Frank Cherry. And um, I actually brought several that I wanted to read to you. But the, here's what this one says. I am Willard Avon Evans, 33 years old, born March the 1st, 1978, currently incarcerated for 15 years. I lived in Birmingham. I read your story in the Alabama Baptist. I met Bobby Frank Cherry in 2004 at Holman Prison. We were in lockup together. Sister McKinstry, Bobby Frank Cherry confessed that he needs to read. The racism that he has been spared is only through your gentle courage that we are in your debt. Today it seems that all doors are open to him, which I am sure are circumstances that you could have only dreamed, prayed, and hoped for. And she goes on to say thank you. Um, I will do uh, two more. This one, I won't read it. Uh, the, the lady wrote me a, a four-page letter. She read the book, and she said, uh, when it's all said and done, if you'll read what my stationery says at the bottom, I think you get the point. And the stationery at the bottom says, to this, you have been called. And she's talking about this ministry of, of bringing people together, um, teaching people to love each other and to forgive each other and so forth. But it's a beautiful letter. This woman is 85 years old. And um, this is the last one here. It says, on the anniversary of the bombing of the 16th Street Church, I want to thank you for your book, While the World Watched. I can't tell you how your words move me in a way I never felt before. I am a 55-year-old white woman. I grew up in a small town in East Tennessee, far removed from the civil rights movement of the 1960s. I was in high school before I shared classes with African-American kids. I just never gave any thought to how they felt about growing up so differently from me. We were friends, and that was all that mattered. Uh, just post it on my Facebook for people to read your book. I hope they will. God bless you for your courage and your conviction that we are all children of God. So that those are just uh, samples of some of the kinds of letters that I get. Um, 
Uh, sometimes people will say, will you come and talk about healing in our school? I did go out to Aurora, Colorado earlier this year. Um, I've been to places where they've had many of these tragedies, and that's what we talked about. Um, I will say that in all the places that I visited, they know the Freedom Songs. They know, they know of Dr. Martin Luther King in, in Spain, in Rome, in Israel. Everywhere I went, they know of him. They know his speeches, and they know his songs. When I arrived in, in Rome, they sang five of those songs back to back. They sang it in Italian first, and then they came back and sang it in English. But they sang it with the same rhythm with, that we do, which was so wonderful. And during the time that I was in Israel, they, uh, they started shooting. And many of us were kind of afraid. We were kind of hidden. And we had visited someone's home, and we were kind of hidden uh, away in this home. But we could hear all this stuff overhead. And they s started talking about Dr. King. And then someone just started singing the freedom songs. And they sang, over my head. I hear freedom in the air. And then when they finished that one, somebody said, come by here, Lord. And they were just praying through the songs until all of this uh, shooting and what, you know, the things going on around us uh, were, were, had stopped. And uh, I can tell you that it makes so much difference. It doesn't matter what culture you are, how different you are from the people you're sitting with. I didn't know these people at all. I was meeting them for the first time. But we were all in danger, and we all sang the songs, and we all prayed. So I think that it works. And again, I will say we are more alike then we are different. When I talk to parents, um, husbands or wives, what, whatever we're talking about. I mean, when I go over there, when I'm over here, I just think we're more alike. We will find that out. We will find that out if we allow ourselves to get to know each other. If we teach our children to respect everybody. You know, we don't have to mimic what anybody else is doing. Just teach respect of all people. And if they're not respecting themselves, then we just kind of walk away from that. Did I, I saw somebody's hand. Yes, ma'am. You said that the church didn't recognize uh, the bombing itself. And how long did it take for that the church? Sorry, sorry. <laughs> I'll do it twice. No. Um, you had mentioned that the church had not acknowledged the bombing afterwards for quite some time. And how long did it take until the church? You know, I guess it depends on, on what we call acknowledge. Um, I, up until two years ago, I remained a, a member of the church from the age of two up until two years ago, and then I was called to work with some other another church. But um, I know that we did not have a marker on the side for all those years, so now there is a marker on the side that points to the space where the bomb was actually planted. Um, downstairs in the memorial area, we had a few pictures that had been donated and given, uh, but it doesn't really tell the story. Pictures of the girls are there, but it doesn't really tell the story. So the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute now has panels that tell the story. They've got pictures. Uh, Dr. Pijo has the medal there now. And so the whole story is complete now. And you probably know that on Saturday, this is the project that I've been working on all year, that Saturday we unveiled the sculpture in Kelly Ingham Park. And so now we have uh, uh, almost life-size 
sculptures of those four girls so that children know who they are. Uh, when people come now, we can say, well, it's 50 years coming, but it's here. And we, uh, we're really very grateful to the Birmingham community for all they've done and just feel that those are the perfect culmination to uh, a year of reflection and to uh, uh, determining how we move forward and uh, continue to make us all the best that we can be. Yes, yes, ma'am. How do I feel uh, that the Congressional Medal plays a part? Well, I think the Congress, the awarding of the Congressional Gold Medals, uh, says that we have come uh, a long way. I think it says a lot about the majority of the people in our country. Uh, it says that the girls did not die in vain. It, it says that the words of Martin Luther King during their eulogy, that unmerited suffering is redemptive, and that we have all lived, I'm so grateful to be here 50 years later, we've all lived to see that redemption in our city, in our state, across the nation, and even countries around the world who sat up and took notice. Uh, with all of the things that were done. I think it also sends a wonderful message to the parents, uh, the families. We have one set of parents left, but to the families of how much the girls were loved, uh, how horrific the tragedy was, and so forth. But I think the main thing would be that we've lived to see uh, the prophetic words of Dr. King, that unmerited suffering is redemptive, and the blood of these girls has, has helped to redeem the nation in ways that we probably have yet to see. Yes, ma'am. Very quickly, could you tell our audience about the window in back? Okay. About the window in back, and also, I should have checked on this before uh, I'm coming here this afternoon, but will copies of your book be available uh, across the street this uh, evening? Uh, I think we, I don't know how many copies are over there. I signed all of the copies that they had uh, about two weeks ago. They called me, so, uh, uh, but they can also, the book can be uh obtained from Amazon.com, and uh, if, if, if they've sell out over there, and then uh, lots of bookstores. I've been told, people have told me they saw it in Walmart and uh, Books a Million, you know, whatever stores you have. So um, it is required reading in Georgia, which is, which is great. Yeah, we hope maybe that'll happen in Alabama. And I was invited back to Coleman which was a, a real first and a plus for those of you who know the history of Coleman. Um, it was great. But uh, in terms of the Wales window, uh, you would have to stand so that you can see this window in the back. But after the bombing of the church, money came from all over the world. Uh, the, we, we, add, we think those receipts totaled a little over $300,000. Then there came a letter from an artist. His name was John Petts, P-E-T-T-S. And John Petts said, um, we have children here who have started uh, collecting pennies and those pennies grew into over a million dollars and so his letter said we want to come and do something we want to replace one of the windows we want it to be a special window and uh, if you agree if you like what we're saying let us know and we did and he came and I think they measured and determined Determined where it would go and in the letter that once the window was done the letter that he sent says that uh, this is the, the left hand 
is pushing out against oppression and the right hand is reaching back to help someone, to bring someone along as I hold back the trouble and the oppression, I'm trying to bring someone along with me. Um, the children of Wales wanted to do something. They wanted to show uh, their support for the girls that had been killed here in Birmingham. And they didn't know initially what they would do, but those pennies grew, and he did the window. And uh, it's, uh, I think, one of the most beautiful pieces in the world. His wife is still living. John Pitts has died. But I received a call from her last year, Anna. Anna and she said, I found glass, pieces of glass that he left behind when he was doing this window and I wanted to get it to Birmingham. So I said, well, I've got just the person you need to get it to. And uh, she said, I'm going to try to make my way there. So I said, the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute is where it needs to go. So the hope is that, um, that it will arrive. Did I see your hand? Okay. All right. Uh, our president and CEO said we can take one more question. Oh, right here. After having gone through what you did as a child, once you became a mother, how did that impact the way that you raised your children? I have taught my children to love. Um, I have taught them, I've tried to teach them to forgive. I think we sort of come into that on our own, a lot of this, as we grow. But I will tell you that I had some difficult moments because I moved back. I lived in Atlanta a while. I lived in Florida a while. And when I moved back to Birmingham, um, and my children were, we were trying to get them ready to uh, enroll in school. And there were several things that happened. Uh, the first thing that happened, um, the community pool in our neighborhood the community pool all of a sudden became a private pool. Uh, the home I had lived in in, Atlanta, in Georgia, a little place called Warner Robins, I lived in Atlanta first and then a little place called Warner Robins, but the, uh, the, the home we had there, we had just left the same situation, but it was a community pool. When we moved in, they brought up a, a key they said, here's our rules. We just ask that you lock it if it's beyond the, the pool hours. You can swim anytime you get ready. But when I came back to Birmingham, the uh, community pool became private. Then, um, as I was trying to check on the schools for the girls, I have two daughters and a son, and... Um, you know, when my husband and I were coming around by the school bus one day and they got off and the children were fighting. And I said, well, this is not good. And I went and I went to the board and I said, well, I have one going into middle school next year. I'm trying to understand why it's so much fighting. I live in Jefferson County and uh, we're in an unincorporated area. We're not part of the Birmingham school system. But he said, well, uh, just a little joke. The white children came on the bus with sheets. And then the fighting started, and the black people said, we're not afraid of sheets anymore. And they all started fighting, and it just kind of went crazy. And then we had problems in the local high school. So it was really hard for me because me living through it was one thing. I had been raised very differently. Uh, I think my generation of children were very obedient, you know, and we, we understood rules and, and toughness and all. But I had sort of... Um, led my children to believe that Birmingham was a different place and that we were going back home and they would be able to uh, go to school and have a great time. And it hurt me more than it hurt them. You know, they, 
they knew they didn't really still understand a lot. So I had to make some quick decisions. And I had a son who had um, could not hear in one ear. And children can be really cruel if you have a, a student that is uh, lagging behind a little bit. So I had to I routed him to a private school, and then I just decided to route them all. Uh, through private schools because I didn't know what to do about the fighting. I didn't know what to do about what do you do when people get on. I mean, it's not the right thing to get on the bus with sheets, but if no one will tell students that they can't do that, then what do you do? And this is what I meant when I said we must teach children to respect all people. Uh, it's not fun anymore. And if they know the history of sheets, then they don't want to get on the bus you know, with that. But someone thought it was funny, and, you know, maybe they heard it somewhere. I'm not sure. It was a real challenge uh, because I would run into situations in the school, and I always tried to be as gracious as I could. But it's very different when it's your children, you know, when it's me versus, my, uh, you know, my children. Uh, there's not many people that can tolerate someone mistreating their children. I told a principal once, if you really want to see a woman just go crazy and lose her mind, start mistreating her children, you know, and this was something that was going on. But but I tried to teach them. I, I do think that they have learned the lessons fairly well. They will call me sometimes. Uh, they're all adults now. And they'll call me sometimes when things happen. Uh, if they see things on TV, they'll call and say, Mom, guess what's because I would make them watch certain things, and they hated it. But now they will call me and say, guess what's on? You should turn to this. You know, so um, we do the best that we can. But I understand that I'm doing them a disservice when I don't teach them to respect all people and that we all have gifts to give. And uh, one of the worst things we can do is stand in the way of someone else's gifts. Uh, I think their gifts, God has given all of us gifts. There's room for all of us and all of our gifts. And uh, what we need to do is just be the best that we can be with whatever we've been given to do, whatever we've been called to do. It, it's um, a tough job, but, you know, we just do it the best we can. And so I, I did teach them to love, but I also taught them to speak out when they saw things that were not right, to, to speak out. That's what this book was. People were watching, but no one was saying anything in 1963. But now we have an opportunity. Uh, well, we've always had the opportunity to speak out. We, we just have to do it. Uh, I was really proud, and I'll end with this, Dr. P. Um, I was really proud, and I turned on our TV. You probably know that we've had uh, an issue here at one of our local colleges with the Greek. But then I, look, I turned it on, and here are all these people Students, faculty, um, everybody is marching and saying no more separation by Greek or anything else. When we go to the football games, we're going to all sit together. We're not separating any way, any kind of way anymore. What a wonderful opportunity that was for them to stand up and say something, and they did. They did. Uh, sometimes people don't say anything. I says, well, I didn't think it was right, but... I just didn't say anything, but they all, the, it looked like the whole campus, so I was really proud when I saw that, and thank you very much, Dr. Lawrence Pijo.
Well, thank you so much, Carolyn, uh, for your wonderful remarks and for everything this evening. Uh, Bob or Natalie, are there any instructions? No?